If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 12? John chapter 12, and we are going to um, come back to a part of uh, our passage from last Sunday, but we're also going to finish out this chapter. We will finish John 12 today and be preparing to jump into uh, John 13 to 17, um, the upper room discourse as we studied that this past Saturday. Um, John's gospel, as we have said, calls us to believe in Jesus and find life in him. Believe in Jesus and find life in him. And in light of that big idea, as we've studied through the Gospel of John, we've considered questions throughout the study that surround kind of three main questions, which are, who is Jesus? What is the life that he is offering? And what does belief look like? Believe in Jesus and find life in him. Okay, well, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And who is Jesus? And and what is this life that he is offering to me? John is explaining and expounding on those things for us here in his gospel. And as we close out chapter 12 today, we find ourselves again asking and answering very similar questions. These are questions that arise as we're confronted by some different responses to Christ. We're confronted by the unbelief of some people. We're confronted by the, the weak belief of other people, including ourselves and by the shocking nature of what true belief actually looks like. But we should not be surprised that the nature of true belief is a bit shocking. Remember, Jesus is the one who is bringing heavenly wisdom to us here on earth, which means that, that, our, that he, his answers to our questions could be confusing because they confront this earthly wisdom and earthly thinking that we have. His description of true belief is shocking because it goes against what we naturally understand and what the world around us is teaching to us. I watched a video some time ago of a man who created a bicycle with handlebars that worked the opposite of the way that every other person's bike handlebars work. Trevor's seen this video. It's pretty interesting. Uh, in other words, what, what I'm saying is if if you turn the handlebars to the left, the wheel would go to the right. And if you turn the handlebars to the right, the wheel would go to the left. I don't know why people do things like this, but this man did it. And it was fairly interesting. And he decided he wanted to learn how to ride this bike, in part to prove actually how difficult it is to learn to ride a bike. Kids, if you know how to ride a bike, your brain is doing many, many things that it's amazing that you're able to do that, to ride a bicycle. And this man was trying to retrain his brain. And it took him a surprisingly long time to figure out how to ride this bike with these opposite handlebars. But eventually he got it down and he rode this bike around. Um, and then after weeks and weeks of, of training to ride a backwards bike, he got back on a regular bike. And you know how long it took him to ride that bike? Not long at all, because <laughs> you never forget how to ride a bike, right? Why do I say all that? Well, the belief that Jesus is calling us into is a bit like a backwards bike uh, because it goes against our natural fallen tendencies and the messages that we hear from the world around us. And therefore, to, to believe what Jesus is saying about what it looks like to follow him, to believe his heavenly wisdom is, is not easy. It's actually, it's actually impossible for us to believe it. It's impossible for us to believe it apart from the new birth because our minds and our hearts and our wills will not follow Jesus down this strange path of, of true belief. And even if, if by the work of God's power and grace, we do follow him down this difficult road of true discipleship, 
we know that it's going to be really easy for us to fall back into old ways of thinking in the same way that this man was able to just ride the regular bike the way that he always had, which is why we need to always be reminding ourselves of what it is that Jesus is calling us to be as his followers. What is this difficult road of discipleship that he's calling us down? What is this counterintuitive upside down kingdom path that we are to walk on? And here's what it is. It's to accept the cost of following Jesus, trusting in the reward that true belief brings. That's our big idea for today. Accept the cost of following Jesus, trusting in the reward that true belief brings. We'll see that cost of following Jesus, especially in verses 23 through 26 of John chapter 12, as well as the rewards that come. Accept the cost of following Jesus, trusting in the reward that true belief brings. You know, the difference between riding a bike with backwards handlebars and following Jesus down the road of true belief is that there's really no reason to ride a bike with backwards handlebars. So while both of these things go against our natural inclinations, true belief leads us to deeper and greater blessing and reward. We, we don't accept the cost of following Jesus and walk down the difficult road of cross-shaped discipleship for no reason whatsoever. Why do we do it? We do it trusting in the reward that true belief brings. We believe that doing this is for our good. We do it knowing that it is in following Christ into things like death and loss and service that we're actually able to find fruitfulness and life and honor. So we accept the cost of following Jesus. Why? Because we're trusting in the reward that true belief brings. Now, before we really get into this countercultural path of belief, I want us to look at the closing verses of John 12. Remember that chapters 11 and 12 are forming sort of a bridge in in John's gospel between Jesus's public ministry, where we saw his his signs and his, his teaching so that he was calling people to believe in him, a bridge between that and Jesus's private ministry with his disciples and his eventual crucifixion and resurrection. What we find at the end of this chapter then is a bit of a summary about Jesus's ministry to the crowds and their responses to him. And in many ways, what we read in these verses serves both as a contrast to and a motivation towards true belief. We're going to see what it looks like to not believe and what we are missing out on and see that as as fuel for saying, I want to trust in Christ, even if the road looks difficult. Look with me then here at these closing verses of John 12, beginning in verse 37. John writes, though he, speaking of Jesus, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. There are times when things don't go the way that we want them to, but we still are able to say something like, I did everything I could. Maybe you didn't get the grade that you wanted on a test, but you say, you know what? I did everything that I could. Or you have a, a task or a, a project at, at work and the results don't come back as you expected, but you say, you know what? I did everything that I could. Lots of situations where we might say that. I think when it comes to revealing himself to the crowd, revealing who he is, uh, calling them to believe in him. There's a sense in which we are hearing Jesus say, I did everything I could. I think John is saying that in verse 37, though he did many signs, they still did not believe. Why? Uh, verses 37 to 43 seem to address that question. Let's think about why don't people believe in Jesus? Why don't people believe in Jesus? It's a tough question, but I think, Jesus, I think John is giving us some answers to it. The first answer, that, answer to that question that we find is actually probably the most difficult and mysterious, and it's the sovereignty of God. Why don't people believe in Jesus? Because of the sovereignty of God, because of God's control over all things. John here quotes Isaiah 53 verse 1 and seems to say that this kind of disbelief in Jesus was actually prophesied that God knew that this is exactly how people were going to respond to Jesus, the suffering servant. How? They wouldn't believe in him. So their lack of belief was a part of God's plan as it's revealed in Scripture. And because it was prophesied as such, verse 39 therefore says, therefore they could not believe. What a statement. Verse 39, therefore they could not believe. And they could not believe, not only because that was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah and of others, but also because God had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, is what he says there from another quote in Isaiah, in verse 40, Isaiah 6. They were unable to believe because God kept their eyes from seeing and kept their hearts from understanding. I don't know about you, but I don't like that very much. That's hard. That's difficult. It makes me uncomfortable to think about. It seems to make God's offer of salvation disingenuous to me. He's asking people to believe, and then he's hardening their hearts. It's as if he did everything that he could to cause them to believe. And he did everything that he could to keep them from seeing and believing. What's going on here? D.A. Carson, Carson is helpful. He says that these verses and this quote from Isaiah 6 are speaking about what he calls a judicial hardening. I'll just borrow that term because I can't come up with a better one. It's a judicial hardening, meaning that, that God has kept people from believing as a sign of judgment. 
In other words, this hardening, this, this blinding is not random. It's not unconnected from who is on the receiving end of it. And while it's hard to understand, Carson offers a few things to remember. Let me go through these, some summaries of them that I've got for you. And I'm going to go through them fast. So I'll get, here's a four key words to help us try to understand what this judicial hardening is, is speaking about. The first word is guilty. Guilty. What I mean by that is God is not acting in a vindictive or random way. But in his holiness, he is, contempt, he is condemning those who are already guilty. And who is already guilty? Everyone. Everyone is guilty before him. Guilty. The second word is hope. Hope. There's a kind of hope, actually, that's found in this sovereign hardening. Why? Because it means that if God is the one who can harden people's hearts, then he's also the one who can soften their hearts to believe in him, as he does. He does that with some of these very folks, I would assume, on the day of Pentecost, some 50 or so days later. And he does it for all believers through the new birth. Guilty, yes, but there's hope. And, and also, we need to recognize that this is part of God's plan. That's, that's the third word, plan. This is simply a part of the way that God plans and purposes in his act of redemption. We don't fully understand it, do we? I think that's okay. It's okay to admit that I don't fully understand why he works in this way. But in not fully understanding this, I can trust that God's ways are perfect, that his wisdom is perfect, and that the way he has chosen to work in this world is not unjust, but it is righteous and holy. The fourth word, which we'll think about more, is responsible. Responsible. Human responsibility exists right next to divine sovereignty. And that's part of our second answer as to why people don't believe. But before we get there, I just want to, to take note of Isaiah of uh, John 12, 41, that says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of them. Isaiah said these things, why? Because he saw Jesus's glory and talked about it. In the vision of Isaiah 6, you remember the vision of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty in Isaiah 6? In that vision and in the prophecy of Isaiah 53 that Mark read earlier, these twin pictures of the supreme glory of Jesus and the deep suffering of Jesus, in both of those, Isaiah saw Jesus some 700 years before his incarnation. He had a picture of the kind of Messiah that was coming, one who was holy, 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 but also humble and sent to die. What an amazing thing. In contrast to Jesus' humility, we see this second reason for why people don't believe. Not only is it because of the sovereignty of God, but it also because of the pride of humanity. Why do people not believe? Because of the pride of humanity. This reminds us that the sovereignty of God does not negate human responsibility. God is and must be in control of all things, but we are still responsible, accountable, culpable for our decision to reject him. I think we see this truth in the individuals that are found in verses 42 and 43. I would contend that these people seem to believe, 
in Jesus, but they do not really believe in him. This would not be the first time that John has talked about people believing who did not truly believe. They understood who Jesus was, but they were not ready to follow him with the kind of belief that we're going to talk about in a moment. And why not? What does it say? What's the indictment of verse 43? Because they loved the praises that came from others more than the praises that come from God. They love the praises that come from others more than the praises that come from God. We're going to see in verse 26 of this chapter that to receive true honor, honor from God, we are to be servants of Jesus. But these so-called believers were more concerned with keeping their place in the synagogue and in society than in glorifying God and experiencing true praise and true commendation from him. They, they remind me of the parents of the man born blind. Do you remember the parents of the man born blind who were hesitant to speak too strongly to the authorities? Why? Because they were afraid they were, they were going to get kicked out of the synagogue. They also stand in contrast to the man born blind himself whose true belief allowed him to care absolutely nothing about the praises of others. Rather, he confronted those men who were accusing him and evidenced his true belief. Human pride keeps us from seeing beyond the present praises of others. We, we start to stake our, our identity on what other people say about us, or even what we say about ourselves. All the while, we reject Jesus and we miss the only approval that really matters, the approval of the Father that comes through faith in Jesus. That's the approval that we should be worried about. That's the praise that we want. One of the wonderful blessings of the gospel is that we actually no longer have to worry about who other people say we are or even about who we say we are because God in Christ declares that we are loved by him eternally. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus so we can believe in him in a way that goes against all human logic and wisdom because like Isaiah, we've seen his glory and it's melted our hearts of stone and opened our eyes to his love. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't, don't let the praises of others and don't even let your own approval of yourself be the place that you find your identity because they're so fleeting. If you are in Christ, then he has given you the final word on who you are. He meets us outside the places of earthly honor, just the, the same way that he met that blind man after he had been cast out of the synagogue. And he comes to us and he affirms that we are his, that we are, are fully accepted by him. We are forgiven. We are adopted. And that's the identity that we are to live out of. If you're here and you're finding your identity in the praises or the approval of others, then know that it's always going to be a fleeting thing. It's, it's never going to fully satisfy. If you're like me, and you try to find your approval even in your own opinion of yourself. That's fleeting and messed up and skewed all the time. But if you will admit your guilt and sin and come to Christ in true belief, he will make you his child, and he will give you the assurance that, that you are truly his forever and that nothing can ever separate you from his love. And if that's what we have, then we have true belief, and who cares about the opinion of everyone else? 
if that happens by God's grace and we come to a place of belief, the next question I would ask is, what are we actually believing? That's the question I think of verses 44 through 50. What must people believe about Jesus? Why don't people believe about Jesus? Well, we've seen it's because of the sovereignty of God and because of the pride of humanity. But if people do believe, what must we believe about Jesus? I think that in many ways, these verses of Jesus sum up everything that John has been telling us about Jesus in the first 12 chapters of this gospel. And for that reason, we're going to move pretty quickly through them because we've spent a lot of time in John 1 through 12. Um, so what do need, people need to believe about Jesus? First, let's say it this way, they need to believe his heavenly origins. They need to believe his heavenly origins. They need to believe where he came from. That's been a theme throughout this gospel. Jesus has continually linked himself to the Father in heaven, revealing that he has been sent by him and from him. Not only that, but as, as John says in his, his prologue in chapter 1, uh, while no one has ever seen God, Jesus arrives, and what does Jesus do? He explains God. He is the exact representation of the Father. And as Jesus will say in John 14, whoever has seen him has seen the Father. To believe in Jesus' heavenly origins is to believe that Jesus was the one that, that Isaiah saw on the throne. And that he was the one that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 that he has come from the Father himself, and that he is, in fact, equal to the Father. What do we need to believe? We need to believe in Jesus' heavenly origins. Secondly, we must believe in his light-giving works and words. His light-giving works and words. Our minds are again taken back to the prologue. If you want to do a little bonus study this week, I, I think it would be really interesting to compare uh, John 12, 44 to 50 with John's prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I think that could be a really fruitful study. But our minds go back to that prologue because there Jesus is revealed as what? Light. He is the light of the world. And we go to John 8 where it's, he announced that he is the light of the world. All throughout his ministry, Jesus brought light and life. And, and he calls us to, to trust in him. He brings that life through, through his works and through his words, all to help us leave the darkness of sin and find light and life through belief in him. And yet, as John 3 makes clear, what do we love? We love the darkness. We want to hide in the darkness, and so we reject the light, we continue in our sin. But if we're going to believe in Jesus, we come to him as the light, and we allow him to expose the darkness in us so that we, he can cleanse us and redeem us. The third thing that we believe is we believe in his authority to save and to judge. His authority to save and to judge. This theme of authority, again, a big one throughout John's gospel. And while Jesus emphasizes that he has come with the authority in particular to forgive sins and to bring life, there are also moments where we see, we see that he has the authority to judge. And here we see that, that with the reality of Jesus' ability to save all people who come to him through faith and, and who believe in the truth is also the, this, this reality that all who reject him will be judged. He speaks with the authority of the Father. Therefore, to reject him is to reject the Father. And to reject the Father is to place oneself in the way of divine and eternal judgment. So what do we need to believe about Jesus? We need to believe in his heavenly origins, or else we'll find out that we've invested our, 
our entire selves and earthly things that fade away. We need to believe in his light-giving works and, and words, or we'll remain, we'll remain trapped in our darkness. We need to believe his authority to save, or one day we'll come face to face with his authority to judge. Let me give you a fourth thing to believe about Jesus, but this is going back to verse 23. We must believe in his path to glorification. We must believe in his path to glorification. Do we truly believe that the way for Jesus to be glorified was through his death and his subsequent resurrection? Because if we don't accept that reality, then we won't believe in him. We'll see the cross and it will look like defeat, not triumph. But if we believe that, that Jesus is who he says he was, that he's not only the exalted holy God, but that he's also the, the suffering servant whose death brings us forgiveness in life, that we'll not only find him to be our salvation, but we'll also find him to be our pattern for imitation. And this leads us to our final question that's answered in verses 23 to 26. What does true belief in Jesus look like and lead to? What does true belief in Jesus look like and what does it lead to? Look with me again at these verses, John 12, verses 23 through 26. You remember that there were some Greeks that were brought by Philip, or the, the Greeks that wanted to meet with Jesus, and Philip and Andrew approach him and let him know, and this is Jesus' response in verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And we know that the hour of Jesus' glorification is the hour of his crucifixion, as well as the following resurrection and ascension. He will be glorified, not through the praises of others, but through rejection by people and through death at their hands. He says that this is not only the, the means of salvation, but it's also our pattern for imitation if we are his followers. To truly believe in Christ is to follow him and to follow him into death, into loss, and into humble service, knowing that death brings fruit, that loss brings life, and that service brings honor. Let's think about those three things. I think that's the way I want to summarize our path of imitation. First, death brings fruit. Death brings fruit. Just as, as Jesus had to be buried like a seed and die to bear fruit, he says, to we who are his followers, that we too must die if we are to bear true eternal fruit. Now think about this. For Jesus' original audience, the disciples, this was not a metaphor. As we will see in John 13 to 17, Jesus knew the persecution and the martyrdom that they would all face. They would truly follow Jesus into death at the hands of those who hated them and him. 
And since Stephen, the first martyr of the church, many have been killed because of their faith in Jesus, and they have died in the hope that death brings true fruit. It was Stephen's death that caused the church to begin to spread to the ends of the earth. And in a similar way, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, saw this and announced that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Listen to the context of that quote. This is what Tertullian, Tertullian in the first century wrote. We are not a new philosophy. This is speaking about Christians, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endured pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. And you frustrate your purpose because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out, they join us. <laughs> the fruit here could be many things but it most certainly includes the many people who see the true faith of those who die for Christ and then join the ranks of the Christians. And for these martyrs, these martyrs are not relegated to the first century. From, from then until now, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ have held to a true faith that believed that their death could bring real fruit. They counted the glory of Christ and the spread of the gospel as more valuable than their very lives. And we cannot forget them, not just in history, but we cannot forget those in our present day who are dying for the name of Christ. They show us what true belief looks like, a belief that, that counts our lives as nothing if we might bring the fruit of the gospel into this world. And while we may not face death, we might pause here and ask looking at the rest of the passage, do, do we love the praises of men and women more than the praises of God? Does that in some way get at the heart of this? Do we care more about what other people think about us than bearing true gospel fruit? Are we willing to die to our pride and choose to let our faith not be some small percentage of our life, but rather the reason that we live and the reason that we would even die? Are we ready to bear witness to the truth of the gospel no matter what the cost is all the way to our lives so that we might bear the fruit of people being drawn out of darkness and into God's marvelous light? Even if we do not face death, is that our heart's attitude that we are willing to die to bear fruit? Well, we find that not only not only this, this first idea that, that um, death brings fruit, but rather we find that true belief also holds to this reality that loss brings life. <laughs> loss brings life. The emphasis here is on, on the danger of loving our lives in this world so much so that we miss true life in the next. Do you see that? Truly, truly, I say uh, in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life, what? In this world will keep it for eternal life. Of course, Jesus is not calling us to a life that doesn't enjoy the blessings that he give, gives us that come from his hands, but he's asking us to, to reshape our minds so that we enjoy these things how? We enjoy them in light of eternity. We enjoy them in light of the, the beauty of the coming kingdom. 
Remember that Jesus had no place to lay his head. And as best we can tell, the only possessions he had were the clothes that were on his back when he died. But in many ways, his lack of material possessions kept his mind and his heart in heaven with his father. The image to me is it's like he was light. He didn't have things weighing him down. And so he easily was drawn into the heavenlies with his father. It was so extreme that it it looked as if he hated his life in this world in contrast to how he invested it in the future kingdom. I've quoted a Rich Mullins lyric from this uh, pulpit many times, but I love it. He says, the stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I I owe only to the giver of all good things. The stuff of earth is fighting for our hearts. And as we think about this call to the kind of belief that embraces the the truth that loss brings life, we might pause and assess, I think, our money and our possessions. We might ask, do our bank accounts and our credit card statements and our possessions, do they indicate that we love our life in this world? Or do they reveal a heart that is in fact focused so much on eternity that it actually looks like we hate our life in this world and that we're investing in the future kingdom? That's not a simple thing to measure, okay? Because as we seek to take care of our families or enjoy uh, God's good world, we, it, it's, it's hard to measure those things. There's not a, a pie chart of your finances that's going to show you where your heart is. But I think in the context of this verses, these verses, we could also just ask, do I look more like Mary? Do I look more like Mary who was actually, who was willing to pour out great wealth wealth of this world to honor Jesus with what I have? Or do I look more like Judas? Do I look more like Judas who was was willing to rob money that was meant to be given to the poor and then eventually sell Jesus out for a bag of silver coins? Do I believe that grasping after worldly wealth will make me happy? Even in small ways, do I believe that? Or do I believe that giving it away And living a life that's not weighed down by such things is actually the path to true life. Remember, I'm not calling us, and Jesus is not calling us, to uh, some miserable existence. Jesus is calling down this path of true belief, of difficult belief, of of cross-shaped discipleship. Why? Because it leads to true blessing. Death brings fruit. Loss, even of all things, brings true life. And third, service brings honor. Service brings honor. Jesus is going to model this for us in some of the most tangible ways possible. He's going to kneel at the disciples' feet and wash them. Then he's going to die for his friends. And he shows us that while service seems like a demeaning of ourselves or a a removal of honor in God's kingdom, it's the servants who are honored by the Father. It's the servants who know the presence of Jesus. We've talked about money already and and how it could be a means of revealing where our hearts are. But if we value anything more than we value money and possessions, it's time. We will pay people money to do things for us if it means that we get more time to use as we please. We treasure our time. And as Jesus says, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. We talked about this at Potluck a few weeks back and noted that not only 
does the place of our treasure reveal our hearts, but it also shapes our hearts. In other words, if, if we, we can assess where we spend our time and that will reveal in some way what we value, but also where we spend our time will shape what we value. It'll push it into that, that mold. If, if we spend all of our time in things outside of God's kingdom, suddenly we begin to love those things more than his kingdom. So do we spend time in service to Christ? Do we, do we give him this, this thing, time, that we value so much? Do we sacrifice it to him? Do we spend time in his word and in prayer? Or are we too busy with other things? Do we spend time encouraging others, taking the time to send them a note or call them or investing time over a cup of coffee to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ or to call other people to trust in Christ? Are we a part of Christ's church? Do we serve our family and our friends? Now, let me just say, like our, our, our finances, there's not a, a pie chart that makes this assessment simple. In fact, as you assess how you use your time, it could be that you end up doing many of the same things, but just with an eternal perspective, with a Christ-focused, worshipful perspective. But we would do well to consider our priorities, and we can give thanks for the ways that we see God leading us to invest our time in his kingdom. And we might ask also how he might be leading us to serve him so that he would say to us on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. You took the time that I gave you. You invested it well. You took the money that I gave you. You invested it well. Now, after all of this, it's really good to end with the gospel as it's expressed in the Lord's Supper. <laughs> because if you're like me, someone starts talking about how I'm using my time and how I'm using my money and how much stuff I have all these things. You know what happens? I turn into a really good little legalist. I get a, a good solid list of the things that I need to do better so that I can earn my favor with God. So God's going to love me more because uh, I walk in these different ways. No, that's an impossible task. Because if you're in Christ through faith in him, there's actually nothing that you could do and there's nothing that you could not do that would cause him to love you more or love you less than the day that he saved you. The final statement of God's opinion on who you are was made at the cross. If you're a child of God, then he has made it clear that he loves you and it's not based in any way on what we do. There's no greater display of love than that. And if we serve Christ, out of true belief. We do it out of gratitude. We don't do it as a means of, of gaining some sort of merit with him. And we even do it because of the blessing that flows from it. We see that, that Christ has offered us this upside down kingdom and walking in his ways and giving all of ourselves to him is the way to true life. We do it because he has done it first. He's shown us the way. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. So as we take this meal today, we're doing it remembering Christ. We're remembering that our hope of salvation is not in anything that we do. It's in everything that Christ did, taking our sins upon himself, dying as our substitute.
but we also do it with deep gratitude and even a resolve, a resolve to follow Jesus down the path that leads to true life. Not an easy path, a path of death and loss and service, but death that bears fruit, loss that leads to life, service that brings the honor of the Father into our lives. If you are a child of God through faith in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in him alone for your salvation, then I want to invite you to take this meal with us. We also ask that you have been baptized, uh, not because baptism is necessary for your salvation, but it is a sign and a symbol that you have taken that first step of obedience. You've had a good conversation with someone about the state of your heart. And so if those things are true of you, I would invite you to take the bread and the cup with us. If not, just please let it pass, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you have about that. We will take it all together. We will pass the bread first, and then we'll take it together, and then we will do the same with the cup. I'd like to offer us a moment of silence to reflect on God's Word, to prepare our hearts for taking the Lord's Supper Uh, And then Andrea is going to come and help me pass the bread. So let's take a moment of silence and then I will pray and we'll pass the bread. Father, we come now to this table and are thankful for the chance to remember you, to remember that our our hope is in what you have done on our behalf. Our hope of salvation is in the fact that you have died in our place. We confess that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, and we equally confess that you have done everything that is necessary to save us. And so we remember your broken body. We remember your shed blood. We remember that your death leads to life. And we remember that you are calling us down that same path to die so that we might truly live. Pray that you'd be near to us as we remember you now and ask it in Christ's name. Amen.